Hi everyone, Jeremy Kerman here with a new episode of Kerman's Corner. Last November, I spoke at the PLUS conference and I did a little spark session on uh, Bitcoin and blockchain. It was a bit of a tongue twister. I called it the building blocks of blockchain and a bit on Bitcoin. Uh, but once people got past the name, I think people enjoyed it. And so I decided to sort of recreate it here uh, as part of the podcast. Now, my first experience with Bitcoin goes back to 2016 at a parking lot at the Nashville airport. And that's when I was talking to a college roommate of mine. We were waiting for our two other college roommates to arrive. And I asked the same question that maybe a lot of listeners are asking, which is, what the hell is a Bitcoin? And uh, my roommate had a computer science background and he started talking to me about it. And I was asking a bunch of questions. Okay, so it's money, but I, I can't hold it. Can I exchange it for dollars? You know, all kinds of questions. This was back before, you know, we started hearing about Bitcoin in the news every day. And by the end of it, I thought I knew a little bit about Bitcoin, but it turns out I didn't really, and I didn't think it was gonna be too relevant to my practice until I started getting into the world of cyber insurance. And sure enough, Bitcoin is pretty relevant there. So today we'll talk a little bit about Bitcoin and blockchain, and I'll give you the spoiler alert up front. Blockchain is the core component, the core technological component upon which Bitcoin is based. It is the foundation for Bitcoin to exist. Now, as I mentioned, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, meaning it is currency that exists only digitally. The market capitalization of Bitcoin as of January of 2018 was 240 billion. Its highest ever was 300 billion. It's a little bit down now, but that's, that's the kind of money that we're talking about. And if you wanna go back to where Bitcoin started, it started with, well, I'll say a person, but I'll just say a name, Satoshi Nakamoto. And the reason I'm being a little iffy about whether it's a person is no one quite knows who or how many people are Satoshi Nakamoto. But they know that in 2008, someone published a white paper that talked about the concept of Bitcoin. And in 2009, the software for Bitcoin followed. Now, before I get into what Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to accomplish, here's an interesting thing about Satoshi Nakamoto. There is a digital wallet that exists that has 1 million Bitcoin in it. There have been no transactions in and out of that wallet, but that wallet has a million Bitcoin in it from a process called mining, which we'll get into later. And that 1 million Bitcoin would be worth five or $6 billion today. Anyway, what Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to accomplish with Bitcoin was to be able to do a transaction between any two willing parties directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Now, who are these trusted third parties that Satoshi Nakamoto wanted to avoid? Those would be things like banks, uh, county offices for doing real estate transactions, uh, secretary of state if you wanna do transactions involving automobiles, or a corporation if you're doing a stock transaction. And I think most of us think that those third parties are pretty important and pretty helpful, but they come with some things that are sort of built into our society that maybe we don't think about that Satoshi Nakamoto wanted to avoid. Things like 
paying the third party fees or only being able to do business during the hours that those third parties are open. The third parties, like a bank, um, might also have certain rules about a transaction. It might say, we'll do a wire transfer, but only for X million dollars. And if you want to do a transaction for more than that, you're out of luck if you go through the third parties. And another big thing about those third parties is that they can be fooled, they can be tricked, they can be frauded. But if it's just two people who are willing to do the transaction directly, then there's no worry about being frauded. Now, Bitcoin has two distinct features. One, it is a distributed ledger with each person in the Bitcoin network having an identical copy of the ledger that updates for each transaction. So if you're asking, does that mean that everyone in the world with Bitcoin software has access to see every Bitcoin transaction ever? Yes, that's exactly what it means. And the second big feature about Bitcoin and the software for it is that it provides an inherent method for verifying each transaction by consensus of the group who has access to view all the transactions, which makes it, if not impossible, very difficult to alter or falsify a transaction. I'll give you a little uh, mnemonic aid to think about how Bitcoin works. And the aid, because I'm trying to be super clever, is the word aid, A-I-D. Bitcoin is anonymous, irreversible, and decentralized. We'll take those one at a time. Bitcoin is anonymous because it is all stored in digital wallets. And digital wallets, the best analogy I've heard, are like a glass safety deposit box. Everyone can see that there is money in it, but they can't necessarily see who owns it or access it without the key. And when I say they can't necessarily see who owns it, that's because each digital wallet has something called a public key and a private key. The public key is a username and the private key is the password. But the public key is not someone's name, it's like a random series of numbers or letters. So if there's a transfer into a digital wallet, again, you can see how much money went in, the fact that money went in, but you don't know who owns it and you can't get it out unless you have that private key. The second thing about Bitcoin is that it's irreversible. Once a transaction happens, it is permanently on the ledger and cannot be changed. Now, of course, that comes with a verification process that we'll get into. But once a transaction is made and verified, it cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. Like, for example, a fraudulent wire transfer can be undone because it goes through that third party of a bank. The third thing is that it's decentralized. And again, that means there is no third party involved. The network keeps track of all transactions, which means no one person or no one bank, no one of those trusted third parties that Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to avoid can be fooled. Okay, you might remember that I mentioned that there was a million Bitcoin in Satoshi Nakamoto's digital wallet. And Satoshi Nakamoto got those Bitcoins by mining. Mining is the process by which Bitcoin is created. And like mining for gold, it is hard work and you get a reward. Here's how it works. A Bitcoin transaction is posted and people called miners race to solve a very difficult math problem. The math problem that they are trying to solve is verification of the Bitcoin transaction because 
the prior transactions that have happened in the Bitcoin world are part of the data, part of the input. And I don't know enough about math to explain it much more than that. But the gist of it is that miners will sort of do a forced trial and error solving. And when I say miners, I mean miners who own computers that do this sort of algorithmic work. And whenever a miner puts in the input that solves the equation, it enters an output that suggests that the transaction was valid. And in order for that to happen, like I said, part of the data are prior transactions in the network. They are sort of blocks in a chain of transactions, which is where the word blockchain comes from. This whole process from transaction to miners solving it and verifying it takes about 10 minutes. A miner will put up that solution to the rest of the miners or whoever else is in the community looking. And everyone else, everyone else will say, yep, that is a valid transaction. And then it becomes permanent on the ledger. Now, miners get a reward for this. That reward is Bitcoin. Um, it used to be 50 Bitcoin, I think, uh, right when Bitcoin began for every transaction solved. And it's been halved every seven years. Now, I think a miner will get about 12 and a half Bitcoin. Um, let's say you do a transaction and you want miners to pay attention to your Bitcoin transaction faster than all the other Bitcoin transactions that are out there. You can add a transaction fee for the miner and that miner will be you know, induced to process your transaction faster. Now, because the amount of computational power that is needed to do these uh, math equation solutions is so much, miners will gather in a mining pool and split any reward. By the year 2140, it is expected that 21 million in Bitcoin will have been mined. Right now, it's about 17 million. And it's hoping that after that, the uh, fees that people can add on to the transactions will be enough alone to sustain the network without more Bitcoin being awarded. 21 million, and this is one of the things that makes Bitcoin a little unique, is sort of the cap of all the Bitcoin that will be mined according to the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. Now you might have heard of other cryptocurrencies out there besides Bitcoin. Ethereum and Ripple are both very popular. There's another one called Dogecoin. Maybe you've seen the meme of the coin or just this dog, a uh, meme of a dog kind of looking up sideways at a camera with a funny face. And uh, someone put the dog's face, that meme, onto a coin and said, here's my cryptocurrency, this is the one I'm doing. And he did it kind of as a joke and then people started investing in it. Uh, and maybe that was the uh, idea that Kanye West had when he tried to have his, have his own Cryptocurrency, he of course named it after himself and called it Coinye, but that was not uh, a very successful cryptocurrency. All right, now we've talked about Bitcoin. Let's talk about blockchain, which is also known as this distributed ledger technology, that distributed ledger I talked about where everyone has a copy of all the transactions. If uh, Bitcoin, I'm sorry, if a digital wallet is like a glass safety deposit box, the best way I've heard to describe blockchain is that it's like a Google document where everyone can share in it. And Bitcoin, I'm sorry, blockchain networks can be either permissioned or permissionless. The best example of a permissionless one is Bitcoin. Everyone who has the appropriate software can log in and see all the Bitcoin transactions that have happened. 
But there's also permission ones that like, for example, an insurance company or uh, a Walgreens might want to have so that only users they give permission to can see what is being transacted. And it doesn't have to be currency. Let's say Walgreens wanted to ship candy bars from a central hub to all the Walgreens. Uh, they could keep track of all those shipments as they go along from point A to point B to finally arrive at point C. And each person and uh, place or location along the way can check in to see when things are delivered. So if you want to compare Bitcoin to blockchain, both have a validation process. In Bitcoin, all transactions are validated by the miners who are doing the mining. And in blockchain, it's validated by whoever is given permission to be in a network. And Bitcoin involves, uh, I guess both of them really involve digital sharing of info with blocks that are a part of a chain. And then once that transaction happens, it is irreversible. One of the reasons people are so excited by blockchain technology is that it's never been hacked. Now, you might have heard of uh, Bitcoin being hacked, but those were centralized Bitcoin exchanges. It's kind of like saying Gmail has been hacked versus all email has been hacked. Maybe one site, one server can be hacked, but the concept of email cannot be hacked. All right, I'd like to end with a couple insurance implications of Bitcoin and blockchain. One of the main ones that we're seeing a lot of these days is ICOs, initial coin offerings, where companies that are going public are offering cryptocurrency or some sort of token instead of equity. Now, the SEC has come out and said that cryptocurrency itself, Bitcoin, Ethereum, is not going to be regulated and it's not going to be insured by the F. DIC. But if cryptocurrencies use in an initial coin offering and it looks like a security, that's when the SEC has been stepping in and saying, well, hold up now, that's, that's something we're interested in regulating. Another insurance implication, because obviously that one could be an insurance implication in the DNO world, is coverage for stolen cryptocurrency. Uh, some policies provide coverage for when cryptocurrency gets stolen. But one of the questions is, is cryptocurrency property? At least one Ohio court back in uh, October of 2018 came out and said, yes, it is indeed property and therefore it would be covered by a commercial property policy. And then there's, the, of course, the other types of policies out there. Uh, the one you might be thinking of is a cyber insurance policy. Cyber insurance policies often cover things like the cost to restore data if it's lost, business interruption. Uh, it might cover the cost of a public relate, hiring a public relations firm to do crisis management if you've had some sort of uh, data breach or data incident. And then you've also got policies which might provide coverage if you've been hacked for paying any ransom if you had a ransomware attack. And that ransomware is, of course, paid in Bitcoin because that's what uh, hackers often ask for. So I hope you left this uh, episode knowing a little bit more about Bitcoin and blockchain than you did when you started. We'll have another Kerman's Corner coming up soon. This is Jeremy Kerman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>